The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, creatives, media and technology, entrepreneurship, so much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. 80% of Americans listen to the radio every single week. That may be lost in New York and Washington where people have moved fully into podcasts because they're getting on the subway or the metro. In most of America, you're still getting in your car. You're not hooking up your iPhone and connecting it and setting up the podcast feed. You're just turning on the radio dial and you're flipping through it. In case you missed it, back at you with another Full Disclosure Rewind featuring highlights from recent episodes, including our live show at the U of R with James Beard-nominated chef Sonny Boija. Elsewhere, the art of going straight from B-School to the CEO owner suite, and why Jeremy Hobson, famous from NPR and Marketplace hosting duties, is doubling down on live radio in 2023. Do stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start with Chef Sonny Boija discussing how he kept his acclaimed Indian restaurant Leja afloat during the pandemic. I want you to fast forward to 2019 on the eve of something we didn't know happening. I mean, I had a, a rock series going on in Chaco. It was a wonderful Christmas and none of us knew that this global calamity is coming from across the pond. You were in 2019 named uh, James Beard semifinalist, best chef mid-Atlantic. And again in 2020. And just when you can most parlay it, the world effectively stops in March of 2020. This has been a through line for the show. I see Michael Sparks from Underground Kitchen is here. And um, I'm not going to embarrass you, but one thing that ties people together is you both immediately said, look, if this is shut down and I got staff and I got to keep moving or I'm going to die, why don't I help critical workers or responders or healthcare people? So I'm a very positive person. I don't take things negatively at all. Even if I'm surrounding with negative people, I try to get out of there and take them out of my life. I just want positivity. I don't want any negativity in my life. Uh, that's all I am. And uh, I'm very straightforward. People who know me, they know I'm very straightforward. I love everybody, but then I want positivity in my life. If you are friend, you are truly friend. I won't say it. So during that time, and our restaurant, we got, we were, we were lucky, we were very busy, but reservation doesn't happen as happened in local restaurant. You can still expect 100 people every day without a reservation. It's very common. And that was the first time in my life, in my career, when I was managing restaurant back in India or group or here, that we were almost 70% booked till May, in March, because we had James Beer recognition, there was Forbes, Esquire, multiple things came in two weeks. Like so many media, like national media mentioned about us and our books were flooded. I have never seen it. And we were like, wow, this is gonna be our best year ever. 2020. 2020. And even the day we decided to close it, I still remember we did 132 covers. And when everybody did like 20, when I talked to the other restaurant, they were like, we did 20 people today, 30, because it happened like all of a sudden, 
It's like two days and like, what's going on? And like that Saturday, we were like 132 covers and we had like 350 reservations. And we, yeah, we did 132, which we were like, what's going on? But going next day, we realized, man, what has happened? And we, uh, we were one of the first uh, restaurants, I think first or two, second restaurant who voluntarily decided to close it and uh, see what's going on. And then those negativity was coming to your mind because I want to be busy. I want to cook food. I want to do all those things. And it was never uh, going on. You were like almost shut down to the pace that you're like still. And what's next? So I decided like our first responder, our healthcare workers been working super hard. So I tell my kitchen, I said, you know what? We were financially good. If something happened, we can easily sustain three, four months. So I said, you know what? At this point, we should do our part. So I decided to cook for anyone who's first responder on healthcare. We decided two days that we're gonna do free food for any number of people. Just call us, any hospital you are at, just call us. If we be able to deliver it, we will deliver it, otherwise you pick it up. So we, we did it and we got busy doing that. And we never thought what's going on for the first actually two weeks. So that was the very first thing I decided immediately that we're gonna do this. This is what we can do. But then at night, so you're with your wife and family, you're not, I mean, these are existential solvency issues. Are people ever gonna come back to indoor dining? We're still dealing, you know, three and a half years, almost four years after this with the, or a follow-on effect. Starbucks moved to drive-through, dining rooms are dying. The mall itself had a near-death experience, the shiny mall. And a lot of businesses, the Cheesecake Factory near you contorted to do, you know, DoorDash cheesecake delivery saved that business in the worst of the pandemic. What were the other considerations? I mean, you know, we've had FOMO and we've come back now and we're somewhat normal, God willing, without the variants, but this was a near-death experience for everyone. You know, if someone knows me very clearly, I don't think too much. And I don't think too far in advance because I feel if I think way too much and I fear too far, some things are not in your control. And that was one, one of those things which none of us has ever predicted and it was in none of our controls. So the only thing we could have done it is just do our part. Like our doctors, our, all those healthcare people, all the people as first responders, we can do something. And then I talked to my team, you know what? I don't know, this, is, this probably go on for three months. That was my analysis in the beginning. So I said, this might happen for three months. And I said, you know what, what we can do? I don't want to lay off any staff or furlough any staff. Let's reach out to the neighborhoods. So we were, if I remember, we might be the very first Richmond restaurant who start approaching the neighborhoods that, hey, we will come to you. Yeah, hold on. I remember on Insta, um, when we're all at home kind of losing our minds, that you very smartly did a batch processing thing. Hey, uh, Twin Hickory, we're coming to you. Hey, West Ham, West End, we're coming to you. And you kind of made it, we're, but by the way, this is, this is in the worst of it, when we're slathering Kroger bags with Purell that nobody could get, <laughs> like shampooing with Purell. You would show up and tell me about the reaction. Again, because Innsbruck and the areas that are near you were completely cored out and are even at half capacity right now. So, uh, as I tell you, that's me. So we start reaching out and community's been so nice. And I think these are the moment when you realize why you're in Richmond and why you love people and communities stand out for each other. Uh, there were people approaching me, hey, if you want to deliver this, you want to do this, and later on I figured it out, somebody is a cardio surgeon who was actually making calls to the homes. Somebody's uh, orthodontist, somebody is like 
oncologist, somebody is a cardio surgeon. They were actually plastic surgeon. These are the guy who was actually handing their community orders for me. And I like, you just feel so lucky and so blessed. We were so lucky that we were literally booked for months in neighborhood deliveries. We were going anywhere 50 miles in Richmond radius. We were doing the days. We were that overwhelmed that we have to literally, because the system, it was pressurizing because we were only doing one third party delivery and that also very limited time. Like imagine if I have to cut off that from six to nine or only doing certain hours and then you're thinking of third party, you're doing online ordering and we were not like that. We were still the other way and you have to still call us for the order and or at our uh, on email and I was combining awake till 12 to 1 every day, wake up at 6 every day. It was definitely pressurizing and managing the kitchen Again, you make sure everything is sustainable. Like I really believe in sustainability and all biodegradable products. It was hard to get those things eventually that how to do it. And experience wise, if you order this food, how after three hours this food will be, are you eating after four hours? Will this food reheat good or so all those things were going on. And I think I worked hard in my life, but I think that time I don't think so. I have ever worked hard ever as much because I was cooking. I was in the kitchen at 6 a.m. and I was processing the orders that you are back in, out. And at the same time, you want your team to be happy. You want them to be mentally happy that don't worry, we're not going anywhere. You are, your families are safe. You don't worry about the food and just don't think too much. I think in a few minutes we have left, I don't think how many people realize how low margin the restaurant business is. Between the cost of goods sold and the way you source things, a default, as you said, farm to table, you like to have biodegradable products for carry out and for everything else that you do. Uh, we have just experienced and we're still experiencing inflation, the likes of which we haven't seen generationally here. And labor, labor with a 3.5% headline unemployment rate, it's been vexingly difficult. We have restaurant people in the audience here getting people to show up. The, the old minimum wage is bunk now, whatever it is. I mean, it's now de facto $15, $20. And then people with tipflation and everything else. How have you managed through the sticker shock and the pass-through in a low-margin business? You know, every restaurant, anybody who's in the restaurant industry, you know, profit margins are definitely, when you look into all those, it's, you're not even counting 10% after doing all those things. So you have to really, you have to manage the things accordingly. And if you're busy, you're super lucky. And in my case, I was very lucky that we stayed busy in pandemic. Uh, the support was phenomenal. And even after that, I have great staff. I'm very, very blessed to have amazing group of staff around me. Those are like family. Many of them are working with me since we opened the doors. And uh, some people are with me for almost 15 years or so. And they made me look good. And uh, I think when you have that thing, as I tell you, I used to think about money into my early 2022, but then I forgot it. I said, okay, food makes me happy. This became the limelight. And when you do right things, everything else follows. Chef Sunny, I guess we wanna, you know, we, we, we call this part of the show historically like open skate, actually. You probably didn't go to a skating rink, but I grew up with this and there was one point where they say only couples on, right? <laughs> so this is the part where you turn it around and you tell us kind of closing thoughts. It might be a note to your 
earliest self. It might be maybe tipping us off, not inside information necessarily. I have no doubt that investors are banging on your door whenever they read about you in Forbes or Arlington Magazine or the Washington Post. Again, no shortage of people have named you one of the best Indian restaurants in the country. And you are less than two decades into this experience. What is your advice going out into the, the, the great beyond, the great hereafter and even in the past? I think when you do right things, everything follows. That's my motto in mind. Just be honest with your people, do the right thing. If you think this is good for you, do it for others. If I can't eat something, I can't do it for me and my family, don't do it. And then everything follows. And as you said, yeah, that's true. I literally been contacted by big, big houses to go national. Anything I want to do, they are behind me for many years now. I think I'm taking some time because I want to spend time with my younger one, my older ones just starting. They, he just started college and uh, he graduated two years early from high school. So all those things I was not ready and it's like already going on. But I just feel do the right thing, follow your passion. And if you follow your passion, do the right thing, everything else will come to you. Also scallops, scallops. <laughs> Chef Sunny Baweja. You were listening to some of the recent live episode, It's Always Sunny in Richmond. Catch the entire conversation wherever you get your podcast. We continue with some of my recent talk with veteran NPR and marketplace personality, Jeremy Hobson. He's out on his own right now and building a live nationally syndicated call-in show. Even as we are told, terrestrial radio is dying. So what's interesting is your voice and your name and the byline, if you will, can travel. I mean, you had the Hobcast for a while, and that's what a lot of people have become, as you yourself have noted on Substack, is kind of free agent journalists who are not tethered to the big masthead or the huge media organization. There's diminishing returns from that. But you felt this hankering as I followed your story to go back to something that we lost, kind of the art of, you know, inclusive, the, the rush of live public radio, which seems like kind of a, you know, a lot of people would dismiss that as kind of Betamax. You know, I think there are a lot of things here about this show that that appeal to me and gets to what you're talking about. One of them is I love the idea of an evening program. This show is live at 8 p.m. Central Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. When I was growing up in central Illinois, I used to listen to the radio at night. It's where I first fell in love with the medium. I think there's something really great about an evening show. There's something more relaxed about it. You just feel more of a connection, I think, to the host on the other end. And by the way, you know, I hosted Marketplace Morning Report. That was in the morning. I hosted Here and Now. That was in the afternoon. The idea of an evening show appeals to me. The other thing is about live. You know, people may think that live radio is, is the thing of the past. I think live radio is the reason for radio's existence right now because podcasts can be listened to anytime, but there is something really special about hearing something in real time as it's happening, warts and all, with all of its unpredictability and spontaneity. And I think in many ways, public radio has gone too far in the direction of overproducing things and making them sound too precious and not real enough. And we lack the authenticity when we don't have the live element. So I think that that is a really important part of this show. And I, and clearly stations have responded. I do think that, you know, of those 370 stations, there are many that the live element is what appeals to them about it most. I'm really fascinated by this. I also understood kind of as a fledgling NPR adjacent podcast that the station's 
decidedly pay for all things considered morning edition and maybe fresh air and wait, wait, don't tell me. And that's kind of packaged. And you clearly worked with, what is it, American Public Media and Marketplace. There are other distributors that kind of get other things, but they're largely not in a position right now. Member stations, which have a, a large, uh, an older demography, people who participate through pledge drives, it skews well into the 60s, I imagine, not digital natives by and large. What is your, I don't mean to sound so mercenary, but what is your business model to be so picked up by these stations? In the meantime, do they pay you anything? So at the beginning, after we, so we did four pilot episodes last year, which was really crucial. And I've been working with John Barth, uh, who's a longtime kind of public radio guru, one of the founders of Marketplace, one of the founders of Reveal, of the Moth Radio Hour. So he knows how to get these things done. But what he said to me a year ago, because I wanted to launch a nightly program, and he said, look, cool your jets. How about we do four specials around the election as a proof of concept? Then it's like you don't have to get on all these station schedules every single week. You're just saying we're doing four live specials around the election. So that's what we did. And around wow. those specials, we managed to get those specials, and they were free to air on over 500 public radio stations. Then we went about going to try to find the money to turn this into a weekly program. And in all the conversations we had with funders, with foundations, et cetera, the one that ended up coming back in March, after many months of, of talking to people and pitching this idea, was iHeartMedia. And they said, we are interested in the podcast. We are very interested in the podcast. Our CEO- Time out. iHeartMedia is the old clear channel, right? Lowry Mays, we're talking, I don't know if Bob, Bob Pittman's Pittman, running the Bob thing right Pittman now, but is the, when, is you the CEO. FM, right. when you turn on a medium FM, and I, I don't listen to FM radio. I haven't for years. I want to get into Bluetooth, but they are there. I mean, they back Molly Jong Fast, Hit Pod. Well, they're the biggest politics. podcast, uh, the biggest podcast distributor in the world. Um, and now that's willful self disruption because their bread and butter is still kind of car dealership advertising on terrestrial radio and and kind of DJs and morning stuff. But that industry has been so disrupted that they've had no choice but to adapt or die to podcasting. Well, and th they came in and said, we love this idea of the of a nonpartisan call-in show where anybody can take part that's focused on the middle. And they said, we, we understand that you have to have a live radio show in order for this podcast to work because you've got to have calls, live calls. And so they said, we looked at for a minute at like, should this go on iHeart radio stations and then be an iHeart podcast? And they're like, no. I think on our talk stations, this wouldn't fit in because a lot of their talk stations are a lot of right-wing conservative talk. So they right. said, we will allow you to put this show out first on public radio live, and then we will distribute the podcast. And so that came a chunk of money that made it possible to get things moving and then go try to find the funding for the show. Now, currently for the first year, we're offering it to public radio stations for free, and then there will be fees after that. And then we're, you know, out looking for grants and other things. But the funding model, I think, over the long term, and I've, I've now had to learn way more about budgets, et cetera, than I would ever want to, the funding model over the long term looks quite strong. There are definitely ways to make this a sustainable and even profitable product. But in the short term, of course, you need the startup capital. Um, the iHeart money is some. We're still on the hunt for grants and other things that will help us get through this first year. But let me let me clarify this. Member stations, the one NPR member stations yep. or low power public radio stations are ones that are, again, NPR adjacent. They're right now, as I understand, they're in no position to pay for anything new. We've seen NPR's cutbacks of staff, NPR's cutbacks on the podcasting budget. 
I mean, we have a lot of friends in that network, so I want to be careful what we say. But meanwhile, a bunch of the other podcasting natives, you see Malcolm Gladwell and Pushkin, you've seen um, Gimlet, which was acquired by Spotify. You remember the startup podcast? All of them have been letting people go left and right. I mean, Adam Davidson was involved. What was it with Sony? I mean, there was a parallel to everything we've seen with Netflix and the streaming boom during the pandemic and the era of 0% interest rates. But a lot of that has kind of disappeared in the meantime. So it's become ever harder. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we are trying to create a model that is going to be sustainable. This is a, I've got a team of six, but almost all of them are working part-time, working remotely, and we're trying to keep costs in a reasonable way. I I will say, you know, Robin, uh, you may know, I'm the child of a British father and a Jewish mother, and both have a reputation for frugality. And thankfully, (laughs) I've I've gotten, I've inherited that from both sides of my family, and I want to make sure that we are able to do this in a way that's not busting the bank. Jeremy, I got to ask you, you know, the big revelation for me, I went and gave a talk uh, yesterday in D.C. about things like, you know, it's been 25 years since college graduation, and I would have been amazed back then. I had the my first MP3 senior year of college was ever long by Foo Fighters. Mm. And I was still jury rigging the disc man in the car to work with the janky cassette adapter and everything. And if I could talk to my, you know, myself 25 years into the future, I would be blown away by one Bluetooth technology, even the the jalopiest car in the world, you could feel like a billionaire in it with seamless Bluetooth. But two, the fact, you know, I'm getting to this is on our smartphones, you're paying for an unlimited data plan. You absolutely feel like a king on Spotify or iTunes or the NPR One app. I drove a lot yesterday, or if I drive up the coast, I can listen to any podcast, any, the most esoteric thing in the world, you know, a podcast about Def Leppard's first two albums. Like it's sliced and diced in a way to step back from all of this. I don't have to care about what's on radio. I don't have to care about the signals changing. Radio doesn't really mean anything to me anymore because I can get everything on demand. And yet you harbor this nostalgia for live evening call-in radio. There's still something to be said about a, a really disrupted, declining medium. Well, first of all, the show is also on a podcast and it wouldn't be on the radio, but for the podcast. So there, you know, and there are many stations uh, that are running the show, not live, but, you know, on the weekend or or something like that. Although I will say technologically, you could still run it live over a stream. I mean, I'm sure there's Twitter spaces technology or Facebook technology for you to do it. Why must you go through the antenna and terrestrial. I understand your nostalgia for it. I understand the sweet place in your memory for Urbana. No, there's also there's also millions of people who are listening to NPR stations every single week still. And like the idea that we just forget about all of those people that are still tuning in to public radio stations every single week is crazy. In fact, Robin, 80% of Americans listen to the radio every single week. Let's not forget about that. That may be lost in New York and Washington when where people have moved fully into podcasts because they're getting on the subway or the metro. But like in most of America, you're still getting in your car. You're not hooking up your iPhone and connecting it and setting up the podcast feed. You're just turning on the radio dial and you're flipping through it. And so I think there are still so many people out there that are getting their information, that are listening to the radio for entertainment, whatever it might be, every single week. But isn't that FM radio? This is where I don't understand. They're, you know, Again, you go to your median Ghanaian cabbie in Washington, D.C., which, again, is not demonstrative of your target demo in this case. There are people listening to Rush Limbaugh 
and then toggling to WAMU, which I think is the number one or number two station. It's an NPR member station. They're going in and out of AM and FM and NPR radio. I never got the impression that that is the case in middle America, that they're going to NPR for kind of talk content or call content. You're making the bet that they can and they will. Oh, I mean, it's one of the biggest networks in the public media system is Minnesota Public Radio, which has some 40 stations or so across the state. People tune into that constantly. Wisconsin Public Radio, both of these networks are carrying our show, also very, very popular. I think this is one of the things, Robin, is that I think when you live on the coasts, you don't quite understand the way that the rest of the country consumes media and pays attention to politics and all those sorts of things. It's different. It's not the same as it is in Washington, D.C. By the way, you bring up Washington, D.C., WAMU, a great station, one of the most important stations in the entire system of public radio. But if you look at their numbers compared to just about any other major market station in the country, WAMU does better in Washington, D.C. than just about any other public radio station does in its market. It's a very unusual place. Yeah, unusual, yeah. Yes. If yes. you look at the comp numbers and the, I read the data scan numbers, I was talking to the former content chief there. I couldn't believe it. But then again, I seem to be anchoring my opinion as kind of in, in the coastal elitism. You've been in Los <laughs> Angeles. You've been in Boston. You've been in D.C. This is a strange world for me. And again, for my listeners, I don't really want to wonk out. You are still dealing with the chief FM radio player out there in kind of iHeartMedia, the former Clear Channel, which is also willfully going into podcasts and saying, I am willing to tolerate and actually encourage your ramp up into NPR stations while we run it on podcast in the interest of building clout and building steam for this, whatever, however, three, four years hence. Yeah. I Look, I think it's a, it's a unique partnership. I hope it works out for everybody involved in it. I think it can. I think if like my job in this is to put on a really good product every week that's going to work on the radio, that's going to work on podcasts, that's going to work where, however people are consuming it. But I think at the end of the day, audio as a medium, whether you're listening to it on live radio or on podcast, is the one kind of media that you can consume while you're doing something else, while you're running, while you're driving, while you're working, whatever. You can't watch TV while you're driving or while you're running, and you can't read a newspaper, but you can consume audio. And so I think however people want to get it, and we'll see what the numbers are, you know, six months down the road, we'll see how, how the podcast is doing and how the broadcast is doing. But I faith that with a good product, people will come. You were listening to some of the recent episode. We'll do it live. My chat with Jeremy Hobson. Catch the entire conversation wherever you get your pods. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast, NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Follow on all social media at handle fulldradio. Huge live shows upcoming at the University of Richmond. MSNBC President Rashida Jones comes back to the RVA in November, November 2nd. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins us on December 1st at the Maudlin Center. Admission is free, but seats, they're going to get snapped up. Details at robins.urichmond.edu. If you are just joining us, welcome to Full Disclosure Rewind featuring recent highlights. We close out with some of my recent episode on the boom in what's being called entrepreneurship through acquisition. That is going straight from B-School to running a company that you just acquired. Bloomberg's Matt Boyle and recently minted Wharton MBA Angela Romero filled us in. So there is this kind of sweet spot. If in my in my conversation with 
private equity types and entrepreneurship through acquisition types. And you and I have been on the other side of this as magazine journalists getting pitched by people when they say parenthetically, like, if you only knew how much money was in dental equipment. I mean, the upcoming retrofit against lead fillings is going to be just a once in a 500 year alpha event. And, you know, my eyes are rolling. and I'm looking at the stake and my watch. <laughs> but it gets it gets people excited and they look at the economics and the exit multiples of something like this. Can you step back for our listeners, Matthew, and explain kind of there's something that's not so small, like it's a corner shop, you know, grossing $40,000 a year and not so big that a Blackstone or a, uh, you know, a big private equity shop is going to have it in its crosshairs at hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, but something that um, could, you know, be supercharged. You could bolt into it. You could bring in expertise. You can rationalize the cost structure. Can you kind of hold my hand and walk me through it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, exactly. We're looking at businesses. I think the the one of the, the average of the median price of these companies that they're that these guys are paying, you know, it's about 15, 16 million dollars. They're paying EBITDA multiples of around seven. A cash um, flow. When you say earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, I want to break that out. That's yes. cash flow. Yes. Um, so these are, you know, so these are businesses that are generating cash. Um, but as you say, Robin, they're a little bit sleepy. They've been run by someone. And usually it's, it's, let's say it's probably a baby boomer, maybe someone who founded this business decades ago. It's a family run business. It's a passion project. And let's just say it's getting a little sleepy. It's getting a little long in the tooth. And the owner wants to retire to Florida or somewhere comfortable. You know, he or she wants out and maybe their kids don't want to take it over. You know, their kids want to work at Google or Goldman or something like that. So they are looking to sell, but it's not easy. I mean, you've, you've got the searchers then having to go in and really do a lot of due diligence. And sometimes they're doing this all on their own. Other times they have investors and advisors to help to guide them through their search. They don't buy a lemon. That's the last thing you certainly want. But they're going in then and saying, okay, whether you, whether I'm getting money from investors to buy this or I'm going to take a, a small business administration back loan and uh, and do it on my own, they are really going to come in as the CEO of this company and you know they're going to be looking for efficiencies. Maybe they are going to cut some staff. Maybe they are going to you know spend a bit more on marketing. Uh, you know, use Salesforce, figure out a way to generate more clients, more customers. Essentially, make this profitable business even more profitable, grow it. And you're right. Sometimes there could be a roll-up involved. You might buy two or three of the same type of company in a particular region and get those economies of scale. Uh, but sometimes it's just buying one company, holding onto it, turning into a much more efficient, more profitable company, and then selling it six or eight years down the line. Matt Boyle, why did Oliver Stone kind of train me to reflexively imagine Bud Fox selling out his father to Gordon Gecko in this There's example. A, a little bit of that, and they get very, very. Um, uh, they don't like it, the ETA folks, when you start comparing them to like the LBO giants and, and the like. And it, it is different. I mean, there are similarities, of course, but it's different. You know, a big difference, of course, is that the big time LBO hotshots are usually not running the companies that they're buying and tearing apart and all that stuff we remember from Wall Street. They are buying and not and holding and running. That's the that's the key thing. 
thing here is they will be the CEO calling the shots, living and dying with their firm, and also, you know, getting to know these employees, running a workforce. That's another big part of this. These guys are not just money guys. They're not just throwing, you know, tr trading pieces of paper around. Uh, they're running this business and making decisions that really matter to these, you know, to the local employees that, that they're hiring. So I do think the sort of, you know, the, the LBO King comparisons here are, are unfair, but you're right. They're, you know, this is almost like a mini PE sort of deal here. Um, but, uh, what I do like about this is that, you know, they're, they're buying and holding and actually leading these companies into more fruitful pastures here. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined yet again by Matthew Boyle. Officially, I can call you friend of the show, Matthew. I guess we could send you a gift card to Applebee's or something. I'd love that. He's a senior reporter at Bloomberg covering the workplace. Um, and, you know, the uh, vertical there, work shift. He's been all over work from home. And this headline really caught my eye this week because I also have been hearing about this mega trend are coming back. MBAs are spurning McKinsey to buy small companies. Entrepreneurship through acquisition is seeing a surge of interest among B-School grads. I guess that, you know, this opportunity in a slack environment for major Wall Street and, and corporate and software hiring, you figure you could do worse. But the question I do have is, Matt, capital is not cheap right now. We've seen the Fed take rates up by more than five points in a year and a half, and that's caused all sorts of businesses to contort. It's caused major layoffs. Even the broad unemployment rate is low. The cost of capital is a problem. So even if you have the hottest MBA managerial talent, even if you did a tour at back in the day, I guess GE was worth something, or you yeah. were at McKinsey and you were a PE person or Bridgewater and you had this magic touch and you came in, money is not cheap right now. You're saying I'm going to go in with a cost of capital, you know, maybe in the high single digits and wring out a return for my investors. I mean, how, how does that lend itself to uh, kind of that arbitrage that I can ring out and, and make a return north of my cost of capital, which the Fed has increased for everybody. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Robin. It's going to be uh, money is money is more expensive these days. So, you know, whatever you are actually borrowing. Now, um, you're also dealing with different types of financing, though. Sometimes these ETA deals are done through seller financing as well. So there are different avenues that they can pursue in terms of how they are acquiring these businesses. Uh, some of these MBAs also have a good chunk of savings built up. They've worked for eight, 10 years in corporate America. Um, and, you know, they are able to plug some of their own money into these deals uh, as well. But uh, overall, you're right. It is, it is a more treacherous environment where with interest rates where they are. So it's kind of raising the stakes for these guys to be able to wring those efficiencies out of the business, um, you know, as, as soon as they, they land these deals. Um, and again, not every uh, not every ETA uh, searcher finds a deal. One out of every three search uh, searches uh, does not result in an acquisition. So sometimes they're just failing uh, completely to find a purchase. And other times, you know, you might be buying a company and not really able to generate uh, as much as a return as you want. Um, but we are talking about in the data I've seen from Stanford uh, Graduate School of Business, which does a biannual survey of all these uh, sort of ETA searches. Um, you know, you're talking about uh, pre-tax returns of, of 35%. Um, and, uh, you know, three out of every four searches that, you know, that lead to an acquisition, uh, you know, are, uh, are making money. They're making a profit. Um, so they are, they do seem to be able to navigate um, in what is, a, as you say, a more precarious interest rate environment here. 
Explain how, you know, you talk about this this golden cellar, this elusive search for, you know, it reminds me of when my dad, my dad was trying to get me to buy my first car. He goes, you don't want to buy a used car from a used car dealership. You want to find this elusive elderly couple that put, <laughs> you know, that put 5,000 miles over 15 years on a Thunderbird. And it's just been sitting in their garage and they're non-smokers. And that itself would take a search, right? So yes. you, if you're in there and you have access, you know, these business schools, HBS and Stanford, uh, Columbia, all of them, even you know UVA, they want to be seeding this stuff because you could look glorious coming out of it. So they might provide in-kind help and other things. You have proximity to classmates where you could raise a lot of money. You have proximity to mentors where you could look back and say, hey, do you want to be part of my you know fundraising uh, long tail? But then you have to shell out a lot to find this. Would you describe it as a headhunter who goes out into the great wide open to look for this elusive business? Yeah, well, there are brokers. Yeah, you can hire a broker to help with your search. And I know some ETA people do that. Of course, then you're, you know, you're dealing with middlemen and you're, you know, um, sacrificing a little bit of, uh, of your, your, your return there. But um, yeah, one of the, you know, one of the searchers I talked to, this former Green Beret, and there are a lot of military people in ETA. Uh, because you know they are very comfortable in uncertain terrain, they are fine with risk, and they also you know are, have experience leading teams of people. You know, he told me that he's been reaching, he's reached out to more than five thousand different firms to find that so-called golden seller. You know, that perfect company run by the nice old couple that are just looking to retire. And oh, look at this nice boy. Oh, he's you know he's ex army. Uh, what a wonderful opportunity for us to sell this business. Um, and he told me this uh, this Green Beret guy. He's come close twice. Uh, but both deals fell through. Um, he told me just recently, as I was finishing up the story, that he he's got a line on a third one, and uh, you know I wish him the best. But um, you know this is uh, this is pretty challenging. One of the more interesting bits of info I heard from the people I talked to is they said, you know, to do this right, you almost need a degree in geriatric psychology to really understand. <laughs> The motivations of these baby boomer sellers, you know, who put their whole life into these businesses and, you know, um, and can be, imagine, quite fickle in terms of what, under what terms are they going to sell for what price, you know, are they going to commit seller financing, you know, so even the most well-prepared searcher, you know, with their, you know, scintillating Harvard or Stanford uh, uh, MBA in their pocket is going is gonna to have a challenging time doing this for, for sure. When they sit around and brainstorm with the headhunters and with their professors and everything, do you start with like a mega trend? You know, I was talking to uh, a hunter and a person. I'm fascinated. I mean, this is neither here nor there. I'm fascinated by the explosion of feral hogs in the <laughs> American South and at, you know, parts of Florida and Georgia and the mid Atlantic. These ancient, I guess, agricultural swine who've so perfectly adapted to multiplying. In the great wild, and they eat acorns and birds' eggs and everything, and trapping them has become really elusive. And there's an yeah. opportunity in the those who do whole sounder trapping, right? He was walking me backwards through it. The economics of doing this and being able to swoop in in Texas and in other places uh, with this thing that that links to a proprietary smartphone app, you wouldn't believe it. My um, goodness. Do you, do you start with the, I mean, in your experience, do they start with the trend first and say, you know, record number of people are getting, I guess, knee replacement surgery as boomers retire or XYZ. And then they kind of try to get 
I don't even know how I'm saying this, try to get examples yeah. or people to fill in the blanks and say, yes, there's an app for that or there's a service for that. And in fact, it's underfunded or it's poorly managed. I mean, you could start with a mega trend, but I mean, that's tough, Robin, because you got to determine, is it a mega trend or is it a mega fad? You know, is it something that's just going to, is it bubbling right now? And 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 six months from now, we're all going to be, for it's going to be gone and, and lost and forgotten. So that's why I think when these guys are doing due diligence, and sorry to say guys, but you know, men and women are doing due diligence. Uh, 13% of searchers are now women, which is uh, more than double what it was a few years ago, uh, which, which is a promising sign. Um, but when they're doing this diligence, I I mean, they, they do have some rubrics and the academics and their professors they talk to do lead them through a lot of sort of, you know, sort of like, let's call it a basic training for, for ETA. You know, how do you narrow down companies in terms of the profitability, the lack of cyclicality, the eventually a promise of, of returns down the road. And so whether it's feral hogs or, you know, um, back office, uh, you know, billing software for for insurers, um, you do need to be right. If you're going to call a trend, you, you sure as hell better be right in calling that trend rather than, let's say, maybe just looking more at an industry that has very favorable margins, not a lot of cyclicality or seasonality to it, and then betting on the you know betting on the industry or the subsector rather than you know a, a mega trend that, as I say, could uh, could easily be a fad if you don't call it right. I wonder if the if the play here, it's like they used to say, you know, Goldman Sachs used to say during the dot com boom, don't invest just in dot com plays, invest in the toll keepers of the inter- yeah. information superhighway, the Cisco's and the Switch. The ones makers. selling yeah, picks and shovels, right? Cisco. Picks and shovels. So are there are there MBA whisperers or enablers of this gigantic entrepreneurship through acquisition thing to kind of be a a wholesale play? Like if I'm thinking I'm a firm that wants to tap into us because I'm I'm interested in this as an investor. It's one of those things, as you know, Matt, it's a non-correlating investment. Uh, people yeah. are going to it because big tech and Wall Street are pulling back. And so that is a valuable thing to have. And mom and pops might zig when other big things are zagging. So are there are there people or personalities or companies or trends that kind of fell through the crack that kind of tipped you off that say, wow, you know, these are going to win regardless? I, I mean, I think it really comes down to for the for these MBAs, you know, talking first to you know the professors and the people, but then also these sort of informal ETA clubs that have cropped up. There are now ETA conferences. Stanford just had a big one. Harvard holds one as well, and they're branching out to uh, to other schools where you just get you know um, you've got buyers and sellers and, and you've got advisors and investors sniffing around. And I think through those conversations, um, you know, whether or not you find uh, an ETA whisperer or not, you're sure as heck going to be a lot better informed when you launch out on this search. So you're not just sort of going, you know, going it alone. And let's remember, you know, there are also the, what they call these core search funds where you do have a team of advisors behind you, giving you advice, giving you even support staff, um, a sense of where you might be looking or, or not looking. Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including an especially Apple podcast. The link, please tell your auntie, call your girlfriend, is fullderadio.com. Again, 
fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, enthuse, and spread the word. We, of course, have NPR's Steve Inskeep coming in for full disclosure live at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business, October 25th. Uh, tickets are free, but we ask that you buy his book on Lincoln and a Divided America. Again, NPR's Steve Inskeep at the University of Richmond's Robin School, the evening of October 25th. You can follow it on all my socials at Full D Radio for details. Joining me from the city of brotherly love is Angela Romero. She is a graduate of the Wharton School's Executive MBA program. In fact, her acquisition company is Wharton Capital Holdings. Graduating out of this, you're looking for acquisitions, I guess, in the hospitality and lodging space. Is that right, Angela? That's correct. Yes, Robin. And without offending you, could I ask how old you are? I'm 37. You're 37. And I'm going to take back from a testimonial that you had on Instagram when you were accepted to the executive MBA program, if you'll let me. Of course. You said, I moved to the U.S. from Columbia when I was 19 in search of a better life for me and my mom. I was terrified. I didn't know English and I had little savings. In the beginning, I attended free ESL classes at night and cleaned houses during the day. When my English was good enough, I started my educational journey. This journey was long. It took me eight years to go from not knowing English to learning English to transferring to a community college to finally transitioning to a four-year university, all while working full-time. I continued to pursue my dreams, and I applied to Wharton. I'm thankful this is back then. You were saying I was accepted and now doing the executive MBA. I got to ask you, for starters, that's a lot. I mean, in your contemporaries who are who are doing two-year tours of duty in consulting firms or in marketing at serial companies and the like, take me back to when you first came to the United States from Colombia. Thank you, Robin, so much for having me on uh, the Full Disclosure uh, podcast. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to share my story and hopefully inspire some folks out there um, trying to do uh, something entrepreneurial. Um, I mean, honestly, it's like what I said, it, it was terrifying. I, I, I remember that on the flight here, it was the second of uh January um and and I just cried literally cried all the way to the flight um there was no uber wait or, coming to the United States yeah I cried all the way um because I was like scared I didn't know anyone I didn't know how, how it was going to turn out you, you came with your you came with your parents no you came by yourself to the United States as a 19 year old to which city um Oakland California what was in Oakland um, I had an uncle there who received me. I was very thankful for that. So I guess re- looking back to your high school years in Colombia, were you looking for work, a better life? Did you want to get out of the country? I could tell you that having, you know, as I said offline, Colombia has had a really miraculous 20 years. I mean, it was almost a failed state when FARC was at the gates of Bogota. A lot of hairy things happened at the early part of the century and it lost population and people came to the United States. But what was your impetus to come here? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I moved here, uh, it was 2004. And so at that time, Colombia hadn't had that magic turnaround. Uh, it was just starting to have that magic turnaround under Albert Uribe, as, as you very well mentioned and covered. So, you know, we just didn't know, like, what, what was going to what was going to happen. Yeah. And obviously, the States is, you know, a dream country where if you work hard, you can make your dreams come true. And so I just figured I, I, I tried my hand at that. What were you going to do when you got there? You were going to live with your uncle and try to apply to high school, community college. I mean, did you have any sort of equivalency from 
Columbia at that age? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had a, like my high school degree. Uh, the plan was to do so in Berkeley, they have like free ESL classes. Um, and so I, I went to that to be able to get my English good enough to be able to apply to community college. Um, and that's, that's what I did. And the plan was really to be able to, to graduate from a four year college. Uh, but again, as, as I mentioned, I didn't really have like any money. So I had to work throughout, um, my time. And the best way that I found in terms of how to organize my time was to work during the day and essentially it's from like, uh, you know, five to 10, go to classes. Where did you work initially? Um, just in houses. Cleaning houses when you first got here. And were you doing hotels? Were you involved? Because I know I helped uh, I helped resettle a family from Iraq mm-hmm. uh, about in 2017 who came to central Virginia. And one thing that's always been open, especially before the pandemic, was, you know, laundry and housekeeping services in uh, hotels. As you know, there's tremendous turnover and it's labor intensive. And it's something where you can be flexible with language and uh, people who are kind of in interim status with documentation. Yep, yep, exactly. That was one of the many jobs that I held. And I think that kind of gave me an eye or opened my eye to like what a hotel business can look like. And then when I got into community college, my major was um, hospitality management. Um, So business and like hospitality management. What was the inflection point? Angela, when you decided, you know, as opposed to being kind of, you know, just on this blue collar track that you could potentially be management or entrepreneurial. And I know it was a long road because, you know, it's this three point turn to go to community college and and bone up on English. And then somebody opened your eyes, presumably to the power of the four year degree. And then next thing you know, you're talking about an MBA at Wharton. (laughs) Yeah, you really you really hit the nail on the head, Robin, where where we said somebody opened my eyes to a four year degree. Um, So I was taking accounting classes and they were funny enough, my favorite classes. And uh, there was a professor, her, her name is Linda, and she kind of took after me because I was getting, you know, the best grades. I was always like in front of the class, like asking questions, paying attention, super engaged. And as you imagine, not a lot of people are super engaged at, you know, in an accounting class at like 9 p.m. Um, so so she just kind of took it to her, uh, her to just ask me like, hey, like, what are you doing after community college? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm done, right? And then she explained that there was this whole other kind of credential or degree that is a four-year college. And and she was a CFO at a company. And so she kind of explained that path of going into a corporate route, going the corporate route and how that can, you know, increase or better my life. So she was almost like a borderline mentor at this point. It was an eye-opening thing for you because otherwise, if she didn't intervene, would you have just gotten, what, the associate's degree and continued on and in small business or something? Yep, exactly. They're definitely a mentor. And I'm very thankful to her to this day. And um, going back to your other question around like what then opened my eyes to becoming like, to getting into a corporate job and getting more into technology, which we'll we'll talk about, um, is when I was in a four-year college, I was very involved in the leadership capacity in the marketing club. So we kind of got speakers that came in and um, talk to us about like their their career, and one of the speakers, her name is Luan Calvert, I believe. As she, she had a very successful career in marketing, and she kind of opened up my eyes to the technology industry and so forth. You were listening to some of the recent episode ETA to CEO. Catch the entire conversation wherever you get your pods. 
Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. If you're listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast link, the entirety of every single interview is available on podcast. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Follow along on all the socials at handle Full D Radio. A shout out to our listeners on Radio IQ uh, on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. Out in California on KPPQ, message me if you would like to carry full disclosure on your air. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Next week.